Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor. I'm Ed Maher with the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150. Ken Edwards is out on assignment today, but lucky us, we have got Phil Davidson from the Mid-America Carpenters with us this morning. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Ed. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Hey, same to you. Have you started, like, the crockpots around the kitchen yet, or... Got those going. Got the little Smokies going. Um, I'm a big fan of the Hanky Pankies. That'll be on the menu for later. Hanky Pankies. Uh, those are those little uh, rye squares with uh, Velveeta cheese and sausage mixed in, and then you put that on top. Never, never, hank- never heard of that. Hanky Pankies. I mean, it sounds like it's a lot of fun to eat. Uh, they're very fun to eat. Trust okay. me. Yeah. yeah Highly I'm a, recommended. I'm a buffalo chicken dip kind of a guy. I don't really care what else there is. If there's buffalo chicken dip, you can just find me near that most of the night. Just dumping the Franks red hot? Yeah, you're all set. Yeah. So who have you got in the game tonight? Well, as you know, uh, the Mid-America Carpenters represents the great state of Missouri in Kansas City, so uh, I'm going to go with the home team there. The uh, Kansas City Chiefs, our um, council office in Kansas City is actually right across the street from Arrowhead. So, um, yeah, let's go Chiefs. So I'm guessing it's not a very tall building. If you sat, if you put a folding chair up on the roof, you wouldn't be able to see into the game Unfortunately not. It's only a couple stories, but I guess if you had some sort of extension ladder or something, who knows? So, no, actually, We've go do that. That's unsafe. Figure it out. Yeah, that would definitely be unsafe. <laughs> um, all right, well, great. I mean, um, you know, a connection to the Super Bowl, something I actually saw this week in the news that was interesting to me that I never knew was that all of the footballs that the NFL uses are made in Chicago. Uh, it's a UFCW local 1546 uh, signatory company named uh, Horween Leather, and they make all the balls for the NFL and all the balls for the NBA, actually. By Wilson, right? They're all Wilson? Yeah, I think they're they're contracted out, but they're the yeah, ones who Yeah, Wilson, uh, Wilson is the manufacturer for all those, but that's awesome. Yeah, and yeah. one of the founders of the company used to play on the Chicago Cardinals before they were the Chicago Staleys, I guess, but uh, one of those really, really, really? old-school George Hallis Bears guys. Where did um, you learn that info? I hadn't heard that one myself. Actually, you know, not to, not to totally, uh, you know, call out our partner television station, but it was on WGN television. So if you're looking for good television news and great labor radio, okay. you're going to find it on WGN. So I'm more familiar with their radio because it's the best in the world. But yeah, 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 the best in the world. Possibly solar system. I'm thinking. I haven't seen anything outside of the solar uh, outside of Earth to, to compete with it. But um, you know, another piece of labor news this week was uh, the report that Marty Walsh, the U.S. Secretary of Labor, um, is reportedly going to be leaving. Uh, you know, around this time in in a presidential administration, cabinet members start to kind of go out and, and do different things. But it sounds like he's going to be taking on the top job at uh, the NHL Players Association. NHLPA, yeah, big uh, big news. A, a major loss, though. Uh, Marty, I believe, was the first card-carrying labor secretary in 50 years. Yeah. So let's hope we get uh, his replacement also as a card-carrying member. He was, um, the the, he was the head of the building right. trades in Boston and... Um, you know, just I mean, he he did a lot. He was he was a worker, uh, and I know people within that department who have worked really hard to protect things like prevailing wage and just kind of use the agency uh, to move things forward. Where Congress can't get it done, there are things you can get done within the agency. So it'll be a big loss, but uh, you know, go do great things for the hockey players. Yeah, Marty. I'm glad that he's still going to be with the union. He's going to re- represent the hockey players' union. So. Yeah. Good so, luck, Marty. So today we have a really interesting guest, somebody I think you know, you and I both know very well, but uh, his name is Professor Bob Bruno from the University of Illinois. He's a professor of uh, labor education, labor and employment relations at their Institute of Labor and Employment Relations, uh, University of Illinois, Ur- Urbana-Champaign. So he does uh, a tremendous amount to 
educate the public, educate union members, and just kind of advance uh, information about the labor movement and how important it is to society. So um, I'm really excited to talk to him. Bob is the man. He really is. He really is. He takes what can be kind of a dry subject and make it just makes it so interesting. So um, he'll be here with us in a few minutes. I hope that you'll all stick around to listen. Um, so we've got a couple of commercials coming up, but stick with us right here for more Workers Mike on 720 WGN. You're listening to the Workers Mike, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. Welcome back, everybody, to the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN. In uh, the previous segment, Phil and I were talking about the guests we have coming in today. So we are very proud to welcome Professor Robert Bruno, uh, who is a professor of labor and employment relations at the School of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Bob. Hey, it is great to be with you, Ed and, and Phil. I need some mouthful Talking about the University of Illinois. You must have a really big business card. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff stuck on it. It does have a, a union label on it, uh, by the way. Yeah. That's only one of your titles, I believe, too. There's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to being a professor, which I'm very proud of, I also direct our labor studies program, which provides worker education uh, to union and non-union members. And I direct a research shop inside the school called the Project for Middle Class Renewal. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you, the work you do is amazing, and I've I've known you a long time, Bob. And um, you know the work that you do with union members, at least in Local One Hundred and Fifty, the operating engineers, is so important because when we bring in new members, it's important for them to know the history of labor and what their part in it is. And you lead those classes on labor history, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it's always inspiring to hear you speak. And I don't know anybody, I can't think of anybody who knows more on the subject subject than you do. Um, and you're you're passionate about it. So, uh, I mean, how did uh, how did you you kind of come to this profession? Well, you know? well, first of all, thank you, Ed, for those gracious uh, comments. Uh, it, it does mean a lot to know that you're being effective in the work that you do. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I come to it because I grew up in a working class background. My father was a union steel worker for over three decades. My mother worked a variety of different jobs. Uh, of course, she. Spent a whole lot of time uh, doing work in in the home that was uncompensated, uh, but everybody in my neighborhood, everybody I grew up with, was connected uh, to a lot of blue collar forms of employment. And being in a union was the most powerful institution to secure uh, their livelihood, and more importantly, to make it possible for their kids to do well in life. So I got into this work because I saw it as a way to give back to the labor movement, to working class people. They had made my life possible, and I thought they had a pretty powerful story to tell, and the best way to do it would be to go uh, into this profession. Right. Well, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's awesome. Um, I was going to ask real quick, Ed, it, is your program, Bob, unique amongst colleges and universities? I mean, do many have uh, labor management relations department yeah uh, so it, it, it is unique for 2023 there was a time right after world war ii when the labor movement was uh, probably at its zenith in terms of membership it was an important institution it had helped win world war ii it was labor management relations was seen as critical to developing the middle class and so programs like this occurred in lots of universities across the country we are the second oldest mm-hmm. program however we get into the politics of the 19. 19- 80s uh, and the attacks on organized labor that have since uh, ensued. And these programs have either been eliminated or they've been whittled away. 
Uh, so right now, we stand as one of the really few examples of programs like this that really do function at a very high level. And to a great extent, it's because this is a state that respects the rights of working people to organize into unions. Right. I've, I've organized events uh, across sort of the eastern half of the U.S. Uh, with the operating engineers, and we always try to include a labor <clears throat> education component. And so we look to wherever we're hosting that event, uh, the local universities, to try to find a professor of labor history. And in the last 10 years, there's really almost nothing. I mean, in mm-hmm. Appalachia, we were able to find some, uh, but in the, su- the, su- the southeast, it's almost impossible. Yeah. You know, and it's worth distinguishing. Uh, there, are, uh, you know, there are lots of folks who are labor historians, and they will be teaching really good labor history to undergraduates. Mm-hmm. The, the real specialty of our program is that we have a mixture of undergraduates, but the largest percentage of our students are working people. They're union right. members. Mm-hmm. So you're doing labor history as part of labor education to union members like those apprentices to the members that you mentioned at 150, which helps to build their level of consciousness about the importance of this institution. Well, we talk a lot about on the show about how staff of unions, um, you know, we need to sort of train up the next generation to understand all the different functions of unions because unions are multi-billion dollar organizations that carry out so many important functions to support workers. Um, and your programs, I mean, I'm a, I'm a graduate of your program right when I got into this business at um, UIC. I mm-hmm. took the classes, but um, I was there with a lot of other sort of just working folks learning about labor law, learning about, um, you know, steward, learning mm-hmm. about labor history. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing service because it does give people the context they need to understand our place in this and, you know, the responsibility to move it forward. Well, I appreciate you mentioning some of the classes in UI and, and the fact that some of those classes happened here in Chicago. So we're a statewide program. Mm-hmm. Administratively, the home is in Urbana-Champaign, but we're a statewide program with offices in both places. So we provide labor education training to about 3,000 union members across the state, and it's a very comprehensive training. So you can get a certificate, for example, in labor leadership, and it talks about organizing and bargaining, and it talks about politics. In fact, tomorrow, I'm teaching a class that looks at labor economics. So you can get a very well-rounded education about how you are situated as a worker in the workplace and, and what your relationship with that labor movement is all about. And we believe that it strengthens your commitment to that organization, and it helps that organization mm-hmm. to function more uh, efficiently. And again, we've been doing that since about, well, I haven't been there for quite that long, but we've been doing this since about 1947. That's wow. how far back wow. the program goes. Yeah. So. Why is labor history so important for for listeners who have never been part of a union and maybe know nothing about the history of the American labor movement? Why is it so important uh, to society today? It's so important today, and it was so important yesterday, and it'll be so important tomorrow, because at the core of this country's development is its work. It's the work that people do. I mean, I would argue that it is the sort of essential human activity Mm -hmm. that we do work. And how we do that work, who does that work, how that work is compensated, is directly connected to the kind of nation that evolves. So you could tell a story, the American story, by looking at its workers. And we will go from the, you know, non-employees, bonded labor, slavery, indentured servants, all the way through wage uh, workers who are not union to then unionizing those workers. Um, it brings immigration history 
because to a large extent, if not almost completely, the, the, mm-hmm. the labor movement story is an immigration story. Uh, and you can see the evolution of this country, including its, its embrace of democracy, giving working people a voice through the labor movement. So I think you can tell the American story through its working class. Mm-hmm. And, that I, and I would argue that's the defining path for understanding what it means, uh, you know, sort of to, to be within this American republic. Right. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't corporations that invented the eight hour workday? Right. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 not not at all. And there is a long period of struggle to get to that point. And regardless whether you're arguing whether it should be eight hours or whether it should be ten hours, or there's a principle, mm-hmm. and that principle is is that you should live a balanced life. You know, you have time for for work time for uh, what you will, and more importantly, the people doing the labor, producing all the value, right? I mean, people like Abraham Lincoln have said some pretty strong things about how labor precedes capital, and labor is the essence of all value, that we need to make sure that those workers have a voice, that they actually have some say, uh, because they're going to spend so much time in the workplace. If they have no democracy there... The political democracy they have outside the work is going to be almost meaningless. Right. Well, I know one of the big supporters, and this is, uh, surprises a lot of a lot of people, is um, in the early American labor movement. One of the biggest supporters was uh, the Catholic Church because they believed that people have to have time that allows them uh, to worship. You know, give them time to to work, to sleep, and in that eight hours for what we will uh, has to include their ability to worship. So, um, I know I was surprised when I first learned that, but um, you know, it was the the Rerum Navarum, I think was uh, was the name of that um, that edict that came out you know hundreds of years ago so there are a number of paper papal encyclicals um, that as you say uh, go back an extensive period of time and then just in the 20th century a number of uh, statements papers written by the American Catholic bishops mm-hmm. uh, by the Pope that speak to Catholic social teaching that fully embrace the right to organize, the, that see the value of work, uh, and, and from that Catholic perspective, that is God's will being unfolded in the world through the work uh, of uh, of the workers. So the teachings very clearly, uh, very clearly make uh, uh, the argument that work should not be exploitive. Right. The workers should have a voice. It should allow Teddy Roosevelt, not from a religious perspective, right. made the case that you're not going to have citizenship if you're hungry. It's, it's going to be meaningless right. to go to the polls and say you're functioning in a democracy when you're working in a sweatshop. So you're going to have to combine – it's political economy. You're going to have to combine those things. By the way, Ed, you brought up the, the position of the Catholic Church. It was a little extraordinary. I think just recently uh, the archbishop uh, has come out against uh, an ordinance in the city uh, of Chicago, which would be essentially just a labor peace agreement, which we can certainly talk about. I did see so that. It yeah. seems contradictory a to that bit, history. Yeah. Yeah. And, but they, and, they were supportive on the workers' rights amendment. Though, but then, they right? were. Yeah. And the, yeah. the archdiocese has been very, very you know, a good, strong partner mm-hmm. with labor. Labor for as long as I can remember in Chicago, um, yep. there's been a great relationship. So I was I was a little bit surprised yeah. to see that too. Um, but uh, in the city of Chicago, has kind of an outsized place in uh, the American labor um, movement's history uh, because of the Haymarket right? Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, that was the start mm-hmm. of. Um, Labor Day, the start of May Day, and you know countries across the world, and that was all over the the fight for the eight hour workday. Is that right? Well, certainly the Haymarket struggle is an extension from this 
um, sp- specific uh, uh, effort to uh, reduce the the work hours, uh, but but it also involved the right to organize. It mm-hmm. it, it involved being paid fair wages. Uh, and in addition to the, that Haymarket story, we also have the, the Pullman uh, strike uh, that happened here in, in Chicago, which is the most immediate trigger for what became Labor Day as a way to maybe take a little steam and, and energy and, and anger uh, out of uh, America's uh, working class. But Chicago is at the epicenter of the evolution and development of labor history. The city is just full of historical locations uh, and and sites. And what a great place then to do labor history, to do labor education, because it also intersects with immigration, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. How big is your staff? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it has... Um, it's changed uh, over the years, but we currently have uh, in the sh- so we have the office in Chicago. Uh, in addition to myself, we have three other full-time instructors. Uh, we also have someone who's affiliated with the Project for Middle Class Renewal, so that person's doing uh, good applied research. Then in Urbana, we have another three full-time uh, faculty members, and we have uh, support people uh, in in both locations. Um, and, it's a, and that's a down a little bit from where we were some years uh, years ago, so it tends to oscillate, uh, but it's a much healthier staff than, as we mentioned earlier, um, in a lot of other programs that have been whittled down. That have been yeah. decimated, yeah. Are, yeah. Is, are you seeing any renewed interest, um, or maybe it's an uptick in interest in the programs, just seeing what we're seeing on a national level, the increased support for organized labor and unions, and we're seeing a lot of young people um, looking to organize it uh, in different sectors, different service sectors. So you, do you feel like that it's really has a grip right now? Yeah, well, there's certainly something in the largest the larger consciousness of american workers i mean you can't look at these huge numbers of people who have jobs shifted and stayed out of the labor market and by the way what the research shows is if you if you quit or if you shift and you move you do better almost mm-hmm. always than if you stick and that's corresponding with these record high levels of support for unionization so uh, we do see uh, we do we do see some of that dynamic playing out uh, in our enrollments in unions who haven't been interested maybe or haven't been using the program in the last few years. They're kind of reintroducing themselves and, and entering into uh, programs with us. And then workers from some different industries, nonprofits, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, uh, who are now signing up uh, to take classes. It, it's always a challenge, though, Phil, to make the point that education – is essential uh, to these workers' future. One of the things I've always admired about Local 150 is that they embrace the idea that education was critical to the development of their apprentices who would be, then become journeymen. You not only had to be technically good at what you do, but you had to understand the importance of the of the labor movement. Yeah, you've got to be a good worker, but you've also got to be a good, strong union yeah, member. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. So exactly. I'd love to uh, talk a little bit more about your research, uh, if you can stick around for another segment. Um, so stick with us, listeners. We'll be right back, um, right here with the Workers' Mic on 720 WGN. You're listening to The Worker's Mic, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. Welcome back, everybody, to The Worker's Mic right here on 720 WGN. 
Uh, it's Ed Maher here with Phil Davidson, and we are talking to Professor Bob Bruno. He's a professor of labor and employment relations from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before the break, if you weren't with us, we were talking a little bit about um, the research that mm-hmm. that Bob's program mm-hmm. does and that he heads up. And, um, you know, I got to say, with with the trends of union favorability being at their highest point since the 1960s, and with the increase in organizing, this has to be sort of an unprecedented time almost, or just a, a fascinating time to be doing this kind of research. Yeah, it, it, and by, it is. Uh, uh, the, the, the continuity, uh, though, is that the, uh, the research on the what we would call the union advantage or the union premium, and we can look at it in a, just a multitude of different ways, has been very robust, meaning strong and consistent for decades. So there's new issues, there's new industries, but the findings are consistent that in a union setting, you have workers who outperform non-union workers, you have union members who receive better benefits, better pay, they're safer Mm -hmm. on the job. And that is a consistent finding that we have that goes back decades. So it, it, it's new research because there's new issues. Right. But what's constant is that union premium remains strong and very, very evident, no matter what industry, what group of workers you're looking at. Right. And not just for the workers, for the, the economy at right. large. Yeah. And, and that perhaps you know is the most significant of all, that it, it is absolutely true that our American middle class came out of organizing, and it came out of having some political power to create regulations for how the economy would work that would lift workers up so that work would pay. It would be genuinely a ladder into the, into the middle class. And what we found was that firms did really well. Mm-hmm. They had to distribute a lot of the wealth a little bit more equally, but they did really well. They outperformed their non-union uh, uh, competitors, and the broader community was healthier. So poverty rates were lower. Fewer people were dependent on government social insurance. Um, you found that home values, we've studied this, home values were higher in union Households, they paid a higher percentage of their revenue to taxes, Mm -hmm. right? They actually helped to support the public infrastructure, which was correlated to safer neighborhoods. It correlated to better funded schools. So you had multi-generations benefit by simply saying, let workers have a voice. Put them at the table. Let them negotiate a deal. They'll do so in the best interest, not only of themselves, but it'll work out for the firm, for the employer, and the broader community will benefit. And And we can take a look historically. In fact, if you look at unionization rates over decades and you compare it to percentage of people in the middle class, and then you look at a lot of these, also, these social indicators – you look at a graph, right? Mm-hmm. The, the trend lines almost overlap. Oh, yeah. When unionization's falling, percentage of people in the middle class is falling. Income inequality is going up. It is so robust. It's, oh, a, yeah. it's a, a, a statistical slam dunk. Directly yeah. correlated, yep. And despite sort of the, you know, the, the condition of the economy today, how would you say the middle class in America is doing right now? Well, 
you know, not as well yeah. as they did uh, rapid growth coming out of uh, a World War II. We've had four decades of pretty much flat wages and growing income inequality. Uh, social mobility, uh, meaning you, you could actually move from one generation to the next into a higher income uh, status, um, uh, has been you know, has been restricted. Uh, so we haven't done particularly well. It's gotten harder for working people to actually accumulate enough wealth to improve their standard. Too many people having to work too many jobs or right. too much work being part-time work without any kind of employer benefits. And again, it, it, it tracks with the challenge that the labor movement has had uh, because we've gone from you know well over a third unionization in the 1950s to now we're just slightly above 10% mm-hmm. overall. Um, that hasn't been good for America's middle so class. is that a product of kind of the shift of uh, you know industry out of America as mm-hmm. well as regulation from the federal government? I mean, it all it all kind of comes together to play a part, right? Yeah, lots of people have sort of measured it, and 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 they've looked at different ways to uh, explain this. One important finding is is that uh, the reduction of unionization um, accounts for maybe over a third or more, which is a real strong finding of why income inequality has grown. Uh, but when you look at why unionization numbers have fallen. To your point, Ed, certainly there have been changes in the economy, and, and government policies have a big difference. But the principal reason is really powerful opposition on the part of employers, then backed by anti-union political leaders who have helped to create the infrastructure and the context. Because surveys of workers, would you be willing to join a union? Mm-hmm. Would you be, um, if they were able to do that, Without risking their, their job, job right. right? Our unionization rates would probably triple right. at a minimum. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's so much retaliation against workers who kind of stick their necks out, and um, you know, it's something that we've talked about a lot on this show is union busters and uh, you know some of the tactics that keep workers because. Recent studies showed that there were, I think, 30 million, or, or perhaps it was more, but it was tens of millions of workers who, given the opportunity, would like to Correct. join a union. Yeah, no, um, that's right. And, and you look at the fact that, so I know the latest report has uh, union membership across the country a little over 10%, right? And whereas 30 years ago, it was 25, 30, 40%, and now you see where the economy is, and workers are so struggling, and their real wages are down. It's like, you don't need to be an economist or a statistician to see, like, yeah, that's there's a definite correlation there. Um, Look, um, a single worker doesn't have anywhere near the market power to go up against a large corporation, even a right. mid-sized corporation. Mm-hmm. They're only going ha- to the, the only way they're going to be able to negotiate a better deal is if they have collective power. So they have to organize. So it's certainly to the interest of those people uh, who want to control wealth, right, and don't want workers really to have much power to do everything you can to make it hard to organize so you you know you fire union organizer you create a, a, a crazy quilt of laws and regulations that say what you can and what you can't do you invest in a huge union avoidance industry uh, 
that's, that scares workers. Right. That worries workers, and rightly so. They need their jobs. Um, uh, and it makes it a whole lot harder to really bring what was called in the early 20th century industrial democracy into the workplace. And losing that was bad for democracy at large. Well, in Illinois, okay. we saw with the Workers' Rights Amendment that – it as an issue polled better than statewide candidates in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in every county in the state of Illinois. So being pro-workers was more important than being pro-Republican, pro-Democrat. Like being yeah. a worker, a supporter of workers is good politics. Yet, you know, at the State of the Union earlier this week, um, you know, we all we heard and, and Joe Biden has done a lot of things behind the scenes that are great for the labor movement and stopped a lot of the the attacks that came uh, at the agency level uh, under President Trump. But, um, you know, he, he mentioned it would have been nice if we could have passed the PRO Act. And uh, there was sort of a murmur from Republicans like, ha, ha, ha. But, I mean, some of the things in the PRO Act and just some of these basic federal labor protections um, would go a long way to helping every American. I mean, a lot of a lot of Republicans as well. Um, so, I mean, what, is, what does it take to kind of break that through at the federal level to make people understand that if you support workers, it's going to help you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're, you make a very good uh, point at uh, that. Uh, the, the, the PRO Act would um, reset that that relationship in the workplace and give workers um, a clear path uh, to doing what the National Labor Relations Act passed in 1935 clearly states is the mission of the of the of the law and the U.S. government is committed to it, allowing workers to organize and to bargain and why? promoting the unionization right. and promoting that's correct and why because it would save capitalism right because it was good for economic uh, development um, so it, it becomes really um, imperative. Uh, for advocates for workers, lab- labor unions uh, uh, most centrally, to be able to communicate how th- th- something like the PRO Act w- would enable workers to have greater control over their lives. In other words, life isn't just happening to them. They're not just taking what's being given. Right. They have agency in their life. To live a fully human life is to have agency, right? To have some, some say in what happens to you. And a, and a piece of legislation like that would give you input. And for what it's worth, just looking at Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, a good two-thirds or more of people out there in the labor force are workers. So there are the vast majority. So why, if we're in a democracy, why shouldn't the vast majority of people have some say about what happens in their workplace. And something like the PRO Act would do it. Would do and it. that shouldn't be that hard of an argument for Democrats or no. friendly right. Republicans yeah. to make. It's, no. it's frustrating for those of us who, who kind of understand the value of it. Right, because yeah. I think most people don't understand. I mean, it, sure, there's mechanisms to, to mechanisms to organize and uh, to collectively bargain, but they don't realize is how much the deck is stacked against the worker in those negotiations. Um, and that's what, you know, the PRO Act... Would remedy, but um, as we've talked about before in the show, like just just when you have a, an election and you ha- and you have the support to form a union, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. You have you have so many hoops it, to jump through, and there's so many opportunities for the employer to reject the vote and to drag their feet before you're actually recognized. Now that's right. In fact, some of the best research that's been done by uh, 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 colleagues of, of mine point out that. You know, after a union is certified in that first year, only a small minority actually get a contract. And, you know, it gets dangerous after that first year, whether Mm -hmm. or not that union's going to survive. So if if we were denying the will 
of two-thirds right. or more of voters in our civic elections, would we call ourselves a democracy? Exactly. Or would, would, you know, would something crazy happen? But we do it to workers in the workplace and we with near impunity with near impu- exactly yeah well if you're just tuning in we're listening to uh we're talking to bob bruno professor bob bruno from the university of illinois uh department of labor and employment relations um now bob you had told me years ago um you know something that you've studied many many times um is prevailing wage which is kind of like a minimum wage for construction workers and um it was kind of a fun fact in one of your classes that you had said that it's one of the the most um, it's one of the economic programs with like the biggest returns for public dollars. Like every dollar that's spent on a, a prevailing wage job returns like more than two dollars mm. into the economy through increased earnings and worker spending and things like that. Um, so these are these are some of the things. And you did a study recently because. In the last decade, there were states across the Midwest that repealed prevailing wage and talked about it being, you know, too costly for taxpayers and driving up costs. And, you know, those of us kind of in the know would say that that's completely not true. That's a political kind of scare tactic just being used to to weaken um, unions and, you know, weaken workers' voices. But, uh, you know, you did a recently did a yeah. study on that across the Midwest on prevailing wage. Yeah, thanks for uh, referencing it. Uh, and I should acknowledge that I have been really blessed to work with a, a, a great partner at the Illinois Economic Policy Institute and Frank Manzo, who's the policy director, who mm-hmm. was my uh, research assistant. So I take great pride in he does great uh, work in the great work that Frank does. And so we've done a number of, and he's got good people on his staff that right. were part of this work as um, have I at the Project for Middle Class Renewal. And what we've consistently find, and it was true in this last report, that when you compare those states that repealed their provisions to states that strongly support worker rights, like Illinois, uh, all of the claims uh, of all the benefits that were going to accrue, like there'd be lower cost, for for example, uh, you'd have more competitive bidding. Well, none of that actually came to pass. In fact, when you compare across a whole series of of, of metrics, you find that those states that repealed their prevailing wage laws uh, actually did worse. So you had a higher percentage of people uh, you know, that, 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 were, that uh, uh, qualified now for public assistance. Their wages might have grown, but they grew less right. than they grew in those worker uh, rights states. And so on, anywhere from 10 to 12 different measures, the workers in states that protected their prevailing wage laws uh, actually outperformed all of the workers in those repeal states without doing any harm to the public bidding process, without driving up costs. In fact, in those states that didn't repeal, you saw greater value because one of the other great things, and, and, and maybe we don't say this enough, the labor movement helps to secure qualified workers, right? right? And so, so unionized firms have a better opportunity to find qualified local work so they can secure the labor. And that's something employers want. That's something that the community wants. And we found that uh, in this most recent study. Okay. Well, we've got to take a break, um, but stick around with us for the the last segment here, Bob. Um, work, or, uh, listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back with the Workers' Mic right here on 720 WGN. You're listening to the Workers' Mic, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health, and Voya Financial. We are back on the Workers' Mic on WGN, uh, here with our guest, Professor Bob Bruno, 
before we wrap up things here, we wanted to uh, give Professor Bruno a chance to talk about a, uh, a new book he's got coming out in the fall. Uh, thank you, uh, Phil. That's nice of you. Yeah, the University of Illinois Press uh, will publish what will turn out to be my fifth book, um, and it's titled What Work Is. And it is a look at how workers um, from different industries, occupations, actually thousands of them, how they've come to experience work, uh, what work means to them, how work is essential in their life, and what are the sort of key uh, concepts and ways that they live out their Work and I'm very excited uh, about it. I'm, I'm pleased that the press wants to publish it, and I, I owe a debt of gratitude to the lots of union members in this state who've taken my classes and have helped uh, communicate this message. So thank you for, yeah, for asking that. Sharing the stories with how their job kind of molds with their identity and makes yeah. them, it's part of who they are. That, that is a. It's got to be fascinating uh, yeah. research. I hope that people will find it a, a, a really enjoyable read. Oh, oh, you said it was coming out in September? I believe September or October, yeah. yeah, Okay. I'll be sure to have to – I'll talk to you when that's coming out. I've got to get a copy. Wonderful. Thanks. Um, So we talked a little bit about your research specific to prevailing wage, but you've done so many studies both with the University of Illinois, with the Project for Middle Class Renewal, and with the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. So – uh, if people wanted to learn a little bit more or read some more of your research, where could they go? Yeah, they can – thank you. Uh, folks can find all of the work that we've done at the Project for Middle Class Renewal at our website. You can very e- easily just sort of Google Project for Middle Class Renewal, University of Illinois. It will take you right to our our page. Uh, but a lot of the work also is on the Alepi uh, website. Now, Alepi has done studies that – uh, we haven't been a partner on, just as we have done studies that they have not been a partner on. But if you wanted to get a really good flavor of the really good research that's being done on workers and particularly on worker labor employment policy, uh, go to either one of those websites. And Alepi uh, is the Illinois Economic yep. Policy Institute. There you go. Right. Okay. Well, uh, we've, we're running low on time, but real quick, Bob, who do you got in the Super Bowl? Yeah, that's a that's a tough uh, tough call. So I think I'm going to go with the Eagles. Okay. Uh, I kind of I kind of like what the Eagles bring. I like the pass rush. I think that makes a big difference in key key moments. So, uh, and you're going to have to have a strong pass rush uh, that's for sure. against Mahomes. So I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go with the Eagles. Narrowly, but in the Eagles. Yeah. All right. Well, good call. Well, uh, thank you so much, Bob, for everything for being with us and um, you know, thank you to all the listeners for sticking with us for the show and uh, come back next week. We'll be right back with you uh, with more Workers Mike here on 720 WGN. The preceding episode of The Workers Mike was powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial. Premise Health and Voya Financial. For additional information and podcasts of the Workers Mike, visit WGNRadio.com.